0: You're listening to Bloom and Tech with David Bloom. This podcast sponsored by Fabric Media in Venice, California. Hey everybody, it's David Bloom back with another episode of Bloom and Tech where we look at the collision of technology, entertainment and media and you know, I have to be frank, many other things too because I just get interested in a lot of stuff. Right before I left for Panama earlier this month, I had the chance to talk with Emilio Estevez, the actor, writer, producer, director, who's behind a new movie that's been out now uh, two a couple weeks called The Public. You know, In that conversation, and I'll share the actual uh, interview that we had later in this podcast, but we talked a lot about libraries. Uh, they're long the world's repositories of knowledge, trying these days to find new roles in the information age. These days they're having a bit of a moment. First in 2017 came Ex Libris, the New York Public Library. It's another one of Frederick Wiseman's long, wonderful, award-winning looks as a documentary at a major institution. And Wiseman, whom I met a few years back, um, has specialized in shooting hundreds and hundreds of hours of institutions such as uh, major ballet theaters and mental health facilities and hospitals helping us understand, and he's been doing this for 40 or 50 years now, for people like public TV, winning lots of Peabody's and other things over the years. Ex Libris came out, at, gosh, two years ago now. It won the Fipressi Prize and was a, f- a nominee for the Golden Lion at the Venice Film Festival. Last fall came The Library Book, the latest from New Yorker staff writer Susan Orlean, whose The Orchid Thief became the unlikely film adaptation, called Adaptation, in the library book, Orlean looks at the 1986 arson of the Los Angeles Public Library's central branch that burned half a million books and damaged a good chunk of another million. Along the way, Orlean examines the fast changing but still essential role of libraries. Along the way, Orlean examines the fast changing but still essential role of libraries in public life in a time when smartphones provide a bottomless well of information and entertainment. Earlier this year, Orlean was featured guest at the L.A. Library Foundation's annual fundraiser. And of course, the uh, library itself was rebuilt 20 years ago in glorious form in downtown L.A. through some really, I think, novel and uh, quite clever uh, financing led by the then mayor, Richard Reardon. I often go there for author talks and uh, other um, excuses to be in the space. It's really cool to be in that temple of books. Well, now comes a new movie, The Public, about a different role that has been thrust upon many libraries as a flashpoint in the nation's homelessness problems. The film debuted in 250 theaters across the country two weeks ago. It's starring and written and directed by Emilio Estevez and set at the main branch of Cincinnati's Public Library during a bitter cold snap. Estevez plays Stuart Goodson, his librarian job substantially morphed into one as social worker, school mom, to the many homeless people who shelter in the library every day. During this lethal polar vortex in which the film is shot, those homeless people finally rebel en masse and refuse to leave it at night, causing a standoff with the police. The public features an impressive cast including Alec Baldwin, Jenna Malone, Taylor Schilling, Christian Slater, Gabriel Union, Jeffrey Wright and Grammy winner Che Rhymefest-Smith. The film does, I think, effectively show the everyday challenges of running a library, even as some of its most loyal patrons are depending on the place just to help them survive, often amid serious mental and physical health problems, addictions, and other issues. As he says, they're just like us because they are us. The film is partly backed by Pongalo, which operates Spanish-language subscription and ad-backed streaming services CEO Rich Hull said the company's backing a string of these original feature-length projects, but this one clearly outgrew what Pangolo is set up to do. So instead, Pongolo is using what Hull calls its massive megaphone with uh, Spanish-language constituents of its projects to talk about the film, but it's being distributed by Universal and by Greenwich Entertainment, which had a recent hit with the Oscar-winning documentary Free Solo. Estevez also sees some hope for libraries in the future despite our increasingly digital focus particularly among millennials who are so often maligned for being uh, tied to their phones but he says they get the opportunity here they've understood the, uh, this information is free for all and it's one of the few places where you can walk in and ask for something and no transactions expected they love their free Wi-Fi and they love free services there's something about that that's very attractive yes indeed well, give a listen to uh, my conversation with Emilio, and I hope you enjoy it. And, and when you get a chance, think about stopping into your local library. Get a card if you don't have one. Even if you don't go into the library on a, re- a regular basis, you can take advantage of services like Libby, which used to be called Overdrive, which allows you to check out many of the books that are already out there in digital form or as audiobooks, which is fantastically convenient, and read them for a time or even cue them if they're not quite ready so they'll be automatically checked out for you weeks later. You can also take advantage in many places, like this L.A. Library, with access to Canopy, which is spelled with a K. It's a service for movies, uh, independent and high-end films. They have a lot of the Criterion Collection, the Sublime Criterion Collection which gives you access uh, to 10 films a month and then the credits reset at the start of the next month but it's a chance to see a lot of films that won't show up on Netflix won't show up on Disney or any other places but are worth watching and among some of the great films we've really ever had and it's free so give a listen to my talk with Emilio after we hear from our sponsor thanks again for listening we'll be right back Here's my talk with Emilio Estevez about libraries, homelessness issues, and much else. Give a listen. So I appreciate you getting on the phone, uh, however you may call it, and talking a little bit about, obviously, your, your movie, but also some of the themes in it, I think, are really interesting. I wanted to talk a little bit about the, the themes underneath the film are sort of interesting, between the homeless guys trying to find their way and, and the role of libraries, I mean, I happened to read uh, Susan Orlean's book, the library book recently, mm-hmm. which also deals with a lot of this stuff. And of course, the burning of L.A. Central of Library, the, the Great Fire, yeah. which, you know, I came to L.A. as a journalist a couple of years afterward, and, and it didn't really register with me. But I did help cover some of the opening of the rebuilt facility and all of that stuff when I, back in the day. But talk to me a little bit about your interest, if you would, in in this notion of what the role of libraries are and how it has evolved and and how that led you to at least this key part of the film.
1: Well, so a couple of reasons. Um, You know, I'd done the bulk of my research for Bobby uh, at the downtown branch of LAPL.
0: And Mm -hmm. that was
1: back in 1999, 2000, Mm -hmm. when I started doing the research Robbie and, and at that point the LA Times was not had not been fully uh, digitized yet hmm. for and was not available um, via the internet. So it was all microfiche. And oh, so yes. there I was in the basement of uh you know doing what journalists do essentially, which is to um, is, is research. And so I, I would sit there at the with the microfiche and with the printer and uh and hit and hit print and it was a dollar a page. And I would bring that material back to my apartment and sit with it, and then I say, "Oh gosh, here's a, here's the beginning of a great story, or a great event that happened uh, during that uh, 24-hour period, but uh, it wasn't particularly on my in on my radar." And so I'd go back the next day, and find that microfiche again, and put it up. And anyway, so the the downtown branch of the Central Library held a very special place for me during during the research for Bobby. Mm. Cut to 2006, and I'm looking for what's next. I'm trying to figure out. I'm looking for inspiration for what to follow up Bobby with. And okay. the LA Times arrives. In the paper is a uh, article, an essay written by Chip Ward, who is a retiring Salt Lake City librarian. And Chip's essay was about how libraries have turned into de facto homeless shelters, and how librarians have become first responders and de the facto
0: social workers,
1: mm-hmm. which is what they didn't go to library school to learn.
0: No, so no. They I didn't pay $50,000 at USC's library science program or whatever to do that, right? That's so, right. You didn't get your MLS
1: to, uh, yeah. to be you know, sweeping the floor of, of urine and feces and, and reviving people. And uh, that, was not, that was not part of the job description. So I was really moved by Chip's piece, and I went back to downtown L.A.P.L. and I wanted to see if it was in fact just as bad as he was describing. And what I learned was it, that it wasn't localized to what was happening in Salt Lake City. His his essay talked about that this was in, this was a crisis on a national level. I began to imagine what it would look like if the patrons, many of whom were homeless, and Marginalized, the poor, and, and some suffering from mental health issues, What well, what it would look like if they'd staged an Occupy, if they said, hey, we're de the facto a the homeless shelter anyway. It's freezing outside. Uh, this is a potentially humanitarian crisis. People are dying in the streets. We're not leaving. How the media would respond to it, how law enforcement would react, and how politicians would and could spin the story for their own gain. How media would create a, a breaking news of their own uh, to create confusion. I don't, I don't know. Were you were, are, are you based out of L.A.? I am yes. And I, so I know, have been. Last a, week? Do, you I, that, uh, do you remember that? Do you remember that? We have an active shooter at Century City Mall, but then it was downgraded two hours later to a suspicious package, right. and then it was by the end of the day it was nothing at all. Right, uh,
0: like, right. You know, yeah, I was supposed those. to meet somebody. I was supposed to meet somebody at Century City Mall who's from Turner. And she said, you know, based on what happened over there and the things in New Zealand, let's go to Nate Nows instead. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. right? Yeah. But, but, right, there's um, a, there's a, the, an abundance of caution, shall we say, has led to an abundance of panic. Uh,
2: that's right.
1: And, and we're, um, and we're now, uh, we're now such a, a, a reactive uh, culture. A society that we are, um, we're, we're, it's almost Pavlovian. As soon as we see this uh, breaking news in red across the bottom of our screen, it's, uh, mm-hmm. you know, there, there, it seems like there's some imminent danger or some, mm-hmm. some, something of some, of some measure of importance that needs, that needs our attention when 90% of the time it's just, uh, it's a ratings grab,
0: it's fake click. I'm an old, old, old time print reporter, so I've always had a certain level of skepticism about my broadcast colleagues and their their need to, uh, their slavery to ratings, but uh, I guess we're all slaves now to the numbers, whether we like it or sure. not in the digital era. So you had a homeless issue, which obviously has been, I think, the signal challenge facing my old friend, Eric Garcetti, as the mayor of Los of Angeles. Of course. And they of course, putting well, I mean, the numbers are staggering. There's 56,000 yeah. plus the
1: California uh, college students, uh, CSU um, students. Uh, yeah. they, there's
0: 11% of them are homeless, couch surfing, living in their car. Uh, so how are you going to um, get an
1: education if you're just thinking about survival?
0: There's signal challenge, and, and as you say, it is uh, something that's broader than just L.A., um, you've set this in the library in Cincinnati, a conservative okay. town noted for baseball and its opposition to Robert Maplethorpe's uh, provocative That's photos. Right. That's right. Um, was that one of the reasons you chose Cincinnati, or is it just because it's sort of a Midwest every town that gets darn cold?
1: Well, it, there's. I, I think it's uh, that it, coupled with the fact that my mother was born in Cincinnati. Uh, my dad's from Dayton, and so I started going back to uh, Cincinnati several years ago. I was encouraged by the film commission there, who said, uh, "Do you have anything that could be reconfigured and rewritten to take place in Cincinnati?" Uh, and I immediately thought of the public, and immediately thought that what what better place to to uh, for, to uh, portray. Uh, a winter vortex, a polar vortex coming down uh, into the city than, than in, the, in the center of the country in Ohio and in mm-hmm. Cincinnati. And so I thought that that was um, to do. Obviously, it does get cold. We just saw it get wildly cold in Los Angeles, but certainly not the, uh, we, we, we're not seeing the temperatures that, that we're seeing in Cincinnati and, and, and the Midwest. Also, Ohio offers an amazing tax rebate, 30% above and, and below the line. And so it makes it very attractive. Uh, especially if you're um, an independent film, to uh, to get that kind of support uh, from the state. So essentially, Ohio became our a partner of ours in the uh, in the overall funding.
0: And you got quite a cast. I mean, you said it's an independent film, and uh, even with the the tax rebates and stuff. I mean, that's a you know, Alec Baldwin and Jeffrey um, Wright and Gabrielle Union and
1: Taylor Yeah, it's Philly a long list.
0: Do you just have like a bunch of pals that all said, "Sure, we'll work for well, free no, in the cold I, I weather, know.
1: or what"? <laughs> I, Christian and I had had worked together uh, on Young Guns uh, Two, and we had done Bobby right. together. Jacob Vargas and I had worked together on Bobby. So aside from those two, I, I had not worked, nor did I really know any of the uh, other cast members. And I, you know, I'm I'm always very respectful and go through the proper channels through the casting director and the agents and make sure that. Uh, that people aren't doing me any favors, uh, that they respond to the material. Uh, you know, oftentimes, I make movies on a very short schedule. This one was shot over 22 days. So it, that's the good news and the bad news. The good news is when you go to Alex, when you go to Jeffrey Wright or Gabrielle, and you, these people are very busy. So when you're only asking for a four-day or a five- or six-day commitment, it's easier for them to say yes because they can, they can slot us in amongst all their other high-profile or higher-paying jobs. Man, that's a that's a big schedule. You were banging it out. We were. Uh, we shot a lot of footage. Uh, we, we got the job done. It, it certainly doesn't look like a like a small independent movie. It's got some scope. Obviously, the cast helps elevate it beyond the uh, indie status. And uh and, and frankly, I didn't I didn't make a, a, an art house movie. I made a movie that that, that plays to the general public. And uh, we took the movie out to Kansas City to screen for the brass at AMC and do a little Q&A afterwards. And following the film, one of the gentlemen sitting in the audience says, why are you guys all treating this like an independent movie? This is very commercial. And I said, hallelujah, that's exactly what I want to hear. and I want to hear it from you because I can't, you know, if I say it, it just sounds like self-serving hyperbole.
0: So you talked to AMC, one of the biggest movie chains in the country. What is the plan? It's coming out on April 5th, I guess, through we Universal? We
1: April 5th, and, and it's through Universal and Greenwich. Greenwich just had the, the success of Free Solo. So Greenwich oh, yeah. is doing our, our, our booking, and universe is uh, coming in behind us and supporting not only the, the, the grassroots tour that we're on right now, but also our mainstream media uh, plan and rollout when we get to New York. So this 30-city tour is going to end in Manhattan. I'm going to, uh, we're going to have a screening at the uh, 42nd Street branch of the Public Library, New York Public Library in, in Manhattan. And then we'll do the Today Show and Fallon and, uh, Ryan and, and, uh, Kelly and Rachel Ray and all of those. We're going to tick all of those mainstream boxes, uh, that we need to do to, to help get the word out. The release on this is not a traditional platform release, which often will go LA, New York, and then and then uh, you know broaden from there. Uh, we're going to go out and and really address the middle of the country uh, uh, heavily. So where not only where we've played, but also where we've been getting traction and and a tremendous amount of interest has been outside of the coast and and the coast specifically. I mean uh, Los Angeles and New York.
2: Yeah. This is a new group at Universal. It's a, it's a real entrepreneurial group. It's really it's really interesting. It's made up of veterans from around the studio, but they're all new under this kind uh, of new new group, which is you know built to release movies exactly like this that have mainstream appeal but are not going to be 3500 screen opening weekend, you know, superhero movies and they've done a great job with really sort of creating a unique release plan and working with Emilio and Emilio's done a great job to be on the road for 30 cities to promote the heck out of it but it's it's an interesting it's a, it's a really interesting strategy that they're employing
0: This feels a little bit more like a book tour, which is sort of appropriate, given the subject matter. (laughs) I mean, right. You'd be an author and you wrote and directed this as well as star in it. So it's like it's pretty much like your book, buddy. You're going to go not to the Barnes and Noble, but to what are the The outlets that are going to you're going to be in the libraries. Okay.
1: right. We've been screening in libraries. We've been screening at AMC Theaters. Uh, uh, Regal just uh, joined us as a partner. Harkins Theater. Uh, which is a chain uh, in in Arizona, Texas, and South the Southwest, I should say. They are uh, they've, they've joined us as a partner. So mm. so little by little, what I've always believed again is that I didn't make an art house film. I made a film that is that speaks to the general public and speaks to more mainstream sensibilities. And and the movie is wildly funny. I think it really takes uh, people off guard, and it's it's disarmingly funny. Which is not something you don't associate humor uh, when you're talking about movies that take place in a library or deal with homelessness issues or mental health uh, issues. Right. Um, right. Or, this is, uh, but the movie is wildly entertaining and wildly funny.
0: I think it's an interesting challenge to humanize and deal with the the homeless folks. There, one of the main homeless guys talks about a certain kind of freedom there. There are others mm. that are clearly dealing with some mental health or having breakdowns of some sort or another, the the, the guy sure. singing early in the film and so on and so forth, singing naked early in the film. Right. How do you do that? Because we have, what, 50% or something like that of homeless do have some sort of mental health issue, obviously drug and alcohol addictions and other challenges, dog, many of them. You've got to try to portray the human side and portray the challenges here, but I mean, how does that balance work out for you as a Well, oftentimes
1: in in Hollywood films, there's sort of two ways that that homelessness or mental homelessness are, are portrayed. And it's, one is like the noble poor where you know, the, the character can never, never do anything wrong and he's, you know, in his, in the basking in this, in you know, beautiful light and, and he's a perfect in every way except for the fact that he's got this, you know, he's, he's got a, either a mental illness or he's on the street. And that just doesn't exist in real life. And, and then the other side of it is, you know, uh, when you talk to people who are uh, experiencing homelessness, there are a lot of stories that are heartbreaking, uh, painful, but there's also a lot of humor. And there's a lot of uh, self-effacing humor that comes out of the stories that they tell. Our challenge was humanizing those individuals on the street because they are just like the rest of us because they are us. Homelessness is, a con- is, is not a condition, it's a situation. And so how do we get them past this, this unfortunate situation that they're in? And so the movie speaks to that. The movie speaks to humanize and, and, and we use humor to do that. But it is that fine line, yeah. and also as as a researcher too, it was that fine line between wanting to have the information and wanting wanting the access, and 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 not being a vulture.
0: And, and the other, I think, really crucial because of what I write about and think about a lot is this collision between technology and entertainment, and you know, sort of stuck in the middle of that. And it's not really about entertainment, but certainly somebody who goes to the library to read. Uh, Read a good book is sure. going to be entertained. It's not just going there for those wacky questions you had people asking about the life size world. They're all and all real. that, those are all. Yeah, real I'm sure. Questions. I'm sure they all, are. Yeah. I've known reference librarians. I know the pain that they go through. Uh, I'm I'm deeply appreciative as a reporter, particularly in the era before the internet was available to humans that weren't in the defense establishment. Reference librarians were journalists' saviors. You know, I mean, they, that's right. They were the first Google. Librarian oh, yeah,
1: Google.
0: yeah. Right. they were little walking Googles, no doubt about it, yeah. like, oh, go to this yeah. book and, you know, and here's this, you know, it was a lifesaver, well, particularly when I was doing investigative projects back in the day. But as you say, none of them went to get their MLS to be a first responder and a social worker. My mother is a social worker and she's got an MSW and she earned it and knows what to do in ways that librarians shouldn't have to, but that's what they have. What, to your mind, is the role of the library in an era of, you know, vast access to all kinds of information, both good and bad? What's what is the role of the library and the librarian in its highest and best form, as opposed to just as a first responder? Well, sure. I I think that um, a lot of
1: people uh, who are critical of libraries haven't been inside one for a long time, and and what we're seeing is that the, the services that are being offered, for instance, I uh, last year was able to renew my passport uh, uh, using the, the Cincinnati Public Library's uh, services to, to help me do that. Uh, there are what, what are called maker spaces where uh, kids can go into libraries and, and uh, access 3D printers. Uh, in Cincinnati, there's a recording studio, so aspiring singers can go in and record Uh, There's a green screen where uh, aspiring filmmakers, young people can go and and make movies. If you're writing a book, uh, they have printing services where you can write and publish your book inside the library. And this is not just exclusive to uh, Cincinnati, there are maker spaces in libraries uh, across the country. So when we think about a modern day library, they are what Eric Kleinenberg calls the cornerstone of. Uh, social infrastructure, preserving that social infrastructure, not only libraries but parks and open spaces that belong to all of us, is part of our. Uh, I I believe it's necessity. It, we, they are they are so necessary for our democracy to to continue to exist. It is they these are the places where class stratification is is erased, where you have middle class people and millionaires working uh, in, in in a table over. Or next to uh, people experiencing either uh, extreme poverty or, or individuals experiencing homelessness. The role, to get back to your question, the role of a, of a, of a modern day librarian should not be to simply act as a first responder. Uh, we are seeing now a model that was, that began in San Francisco, uh, where social workers are brought into the library to help and support librarians who are not equipped. To uh, and are not LCSWs. They are, you know, it, it'll it is allowing librarians to do what they do while the social workers can't, uh, do do case manage for those in the library. So that's a long answer to your question. Um, I I think that the more support uh, that the librarians get from outside resources, and that specifically means social workers. Uh, working in alongside them in that environment, I think that that's the that is the right course of action.
0: You know, that's a, actually an interesting idea. I years ago wrote about how, uh, to its credit, the L.A. County Sheriff's Department started creating mental health response teams that paired a social worker with some of their their officers out on the street, and you know they they've got millions of people that they deal with in the areas that they patrol but lots of mental health issues but but that's another sort of you know flashpoint you know between the police and the police are first forced to be mental health people the biggest mental health hospital in the in, <laughs> in, right. in this community is the jail right. right so that's right so yeah and it sounds like so it's the jail and then the libraries are number two the more functional guys who aren't uh behind bars for one reason or another possibly intentionally to get out of the bad weather that's are right. over the library sheltering and and whatever that's right um, that's right and that space between the shelters of uh,
1: sending the individuals back out into the streets which happens around 6 a.m mm-hmm. to 7 a.m in the morning they clean out they clean mm-hmm. up a lot of libraries don't libraries open until 9 or 10 o'clock. So in that time between 6 a.m. and 10, that's four hours to mm-hmm. find some measure of shelter, get some food uh, before your next uh, opportunity uh, opens up for you, to, you know, to, again, get out of the elements,
0: whether it's right, extreme right. heat or extreme cold. So, do you, what do you think is the future? I mean, if you would place, and I certainly don't think you're wrong, I, my deep affections for the role of the library and and its usefulness in preserving some basic sense of democracy and access to information. What do you think the future is in terms of? You know, so much information has been privatized. Google had the Books Initiative, which was seen in some ways as being kind of cool. But in other ways, we were going, well, wait a minute. And then, you know, Amazon has all these books and, you know, kind of controls some access to them for its commercial purposes. Where do libraries go? Do they have to evolve into uh, some new kind of role? I mean, what, what, what's the future from your mind?
1: Well, I think that the, the, the data point that I find really interesting is that millennials have now started using uh, the library at at at, the, at a rate that we've not seen. So, what does that tell us? It tells us that they have now understood that this is uh, the, this information is free for all. There, it is one of the few places, uh, and if not the only place, where you can walk in and ask for something, and there is no transaction expected. And I think that, um, again, millennials love their uh, free Wi-Fi and free education. And and so I think that there is there is something about that, 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 about libraries offering all of these free services that is very, very attractive. So I'm hopeful that as more young people uh, discover what libraries offer, that they have a renewed sense of purpose. Uh, in the community, I mean, what, what I love is Anne Lamott, the, the author and activist, her quote, which is that um, communities without libraries are like radios without batteries. And I think that you can get a pretty good sense of a particular uh, the community if you take a look at their library. The, the, the librarians will tell you uh, about the health of any particular community because they're dealing with it and seeing it on the daily. Uh, they're seeing what, where the, where the shortfall is. Uh, they're seeing yeah. what the need is. I believe that it is, um, that, that li- libraries are democracy in action and that at, at night, the greatest asset, uh, that librarian that libraries have goes home at night. Yeah. When, yeah, right. It's the, it's the staff and it's the desk reference librarians. They're on un- that are finally with this film having, uh, having a moment of recognition.
0: So hopefully you'll be on Canopy soon, one of the apps that the libraries right. are using right. to make things available. Um, That's right. Yeah, I, I, Canopy is a terrific service. I guess it's called Libby now. It was Overdrive, which I think they still have. But the company, the same company, I think, is behind both for books, for digital versions of books. And then Canopy for everything from a good chunk of the Criterion Collection, which I deeply That's love right. and I'm sure you do, too sure i have got a, got a in, couple movies in, in that oh you have a couple movies in there right that i i, I, I guess that would make sense that's great to get part of that 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 sort of like takes literally takes the library beyond its four walls and um it's open hours so i think that's an interesting that's right. uh move what was it that led you to connect with pangolo and work with them so rich and
1: i started working together a, a couple of years ago in in helping to create a couple of business uh models or uh, not only the public, but also for another picture that I was considering shooting out in in
0: Cincinnati and Pongalo. I think of as an online movie service. They've got one of those, and then they've got their, uh, I guess, ad supported content. Uh, how does how does something like this, a, a feature length film, does this eventually end up on Pongalo, or what's what's that part of the equation here? How does that work?
2: Well, I'll sort of handle that one. I think you know what's interesting about Pongalo is over the last. Year and a half, we've realized that there's a benefit in in producing original content, which really takes me back to my roots. And so, I'd say the last year or so has just been an experiment in that. You know, as you know, we did a movie last year called Girl Flu that uh, that did make its premiere on Pongolo. Uh, it's shot in English, but it was really curated for a Latin market. And then on this one, you know, it far outgrew anything that you know Pongolo would have on its own platform once Universal came in, in uh, on board. But we have a massive megaphone with the Uh, Latino audience who, you know, Mm -hmm. there's millions of people that rely on us to tell them what to watch every month. And so one of the places that we feel like we can bring a lot of value here is by going out and, you know, promoting the release of the movie. It's interesting. I mean, Emilio, you know, he has a Hispanic last name, he has Hispanic roots. And I think one of the ways, whether he realizes or not, that he, you know, celebrates that is by really doing an amazing job of putting multicultural actors, You know in all the lead roles jacob vargas who's a a latino plays a very prominent role there's african-americans there's women i I think it's really special i mean i think it's a real nod to our time and that's one of the things that at pangalo we also try to celebrate and so for us to amplify that to our audience you know across our our svod platform our avod platforms our social media you know i think we can I, i think we can play an important role there and as you know you know, Latinos make up 25% of the U.S. Mo- movie-going audience, so it's like, it's not an insignificant market.
0: Uh, and how are your your brother and father doing? Just, uh, I'm just curious. So, I mean, my dad is doing uh,
1: great. He's on Grace uh, and Frankie, uh, and they're in yeah, the sixth right. season. So he's 79 years old. And he has a a job. Doesn't look to be in retiring anytime soon. And uh, you know, I think that, that uh, one of the things that sort of keeps him motivated and, and going is uh, is the fact that he loves working so much, and he yeah. loves um, he loves being an actor. So he's yeah. doing great. Charlie's doing great, and he's looking to do uh, a, a new a new TV show.
0: So we're, um, we're we're all we're all doing very well. Do you anticipate homeless issues being a part of the conversation in the upcoming presidential election?
1: Well, I'd certainly like to see that. Uh, I, I think that, again, we, we need to start calling things for, for exactly what they are. It's not global warming. We're, we're in a, a global climate crisis. I think that anybody who uh, uh, you know, has, uh, has a beating heart can look, out, can look outside and see where we're at. But also the reality of that is that it's, it's, going, to, it's going to take some very large movements, uh, not only to address uh, the homelessness crisis but all of the major issues of our day and it can't be i don't think anything can be solved by any uh, a single resolution or a piece of legislation um but i think it needs to be uh, every great movement in the history of the world has been people powered and i think that uh, at the at the end of the day the people have to demand the change that they want to see to to your point yes it should yeah. be part of the debate uh, whether or not it will be, I, I don't know, because it's not viewed as a particularly exciting subject. It's something that, that needs to be addressed, when, especially when you think about you know, 25% of, of the nation's homeless are, are veterans, uh, 20% are children. So how is that okay? And that's the question I think we all have to ask ourselves. Are we doing enough? And, and are we okay with that? And if we are, then that sells, then there's something very wrong in the land.
0: And that was Emilio Estevez talking about his new movie, The Public, which has been out in theaters a couple of weeks now and many other issues that occupy his mind. Hope you enjoyed the conversation. Thanks to everybody for listening. And thanks, of course, to our sponsors for their support. This is David Bloom for Bloom in Tech, over and out. You've been listening to Bloom in Tech. I am your host, David Bloom. Thanks so much. And our podcast has been sponsored in this episode by Fabric Media in Venice, California. Take care, everyone.